This is it, folks. This is lesson number eight, the last one. I wish I had about another at least four um, weeks that we could do, four more sessions, because, boy, there's so much more I'd like to, to put in this, but it just, it's, it's not there. So, I mean, we're at the end of the summer. I don't think you guys want to stick around for four more weeks of, of this. Of course, it gets a little, a little boring here after uh, this weekend, so sort of quiet down and everything. But let's go ahead. We'll open up in prayer, and we'll get started with this final lesson on what is worship. Tonight, we're doing worship in truth. So, Father, we thank you so much for this time we have, and we thank you for this summer of being able to explore your word and what Jesus described as what true worship is. And we have learned many things as we've gone through this, and tonight as we sort of wrap up this, and I feel so, um, like it's so incomplete yet, but I just pray, Lord, that this has really impacted um, many of the people's hearts and minds, and not just the staff here, but those who I know listen to these over the internet, that trying to teach us what real worship is according to your standard and what you define it as. So be with us tonight. May your Holy Spirit do the teaching again as we explore into this. What is worship in truth? In Jesus' name, amen. So we've covered a lot of stuff since we started this. Um, here on the eighth week, we've covered so many different things that we have seen about worship. We've taken a look at Old Covenant worship. We've saw what the words for worship are, what they mean. Uh, we've taken a look at what praise is. Because as we've said many times, uh, what we often associate in the Christian church today as worship is the song service, and that's obviously not correct. It's not biblical. Um, we've also taken a look and seen what is praise, the six different words for praise. We've taken a look and seen if we're going to worship God, we need to know who God is. So we've looked at the attributes, some of the few attributes, but we've come to see how holy God is, which is probably the best definition of who God is. Um, we've talked about, last week we started, we got into, again, our text, which has mainly been from John chapter 4, and where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, he twice says that uh, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, and last week we talked about what is worship in spirit, and tonight we're getting to the last part, what is worship in truth. So, as we learned in the last lesson, it's very difficult to separate spirit and truth. To really take them apart, you make them enemies of real worship. Having them together, there's like a synergistic effect where the two are just woven together, and it's really difficult to separate them. Um, but that's what we're going to be dealing with. So worship in spirit, as we talked about last week, is, is primarily about how your heart is conditioned. What is the position of your heart? The emotions, um, how cleansed your heart is and stuff. As we saw, the Samaritans were so into the emotional aspect, as many people are today, and that's not what it really is. Um, it's more dealing with what is going on deep inside, your sincerity of your relationship with Christ. And tonight we're talking about um, truth and um, worshiping in truth. Truth, to worship in truth deals with the Word of God. It's, it's that simple. That's what it is. It, it deals with the Word of God. Now, I remember back when the earth was cooling and I was in high school, there was a... <laughs> I bet that sounded really interesting on the internet. 
<laughs> that was an interesting laugh. <laughs> but um, I remember ask, going to church one time and asking my Sunday school teacher, when, when Jesus, if, if you recall, Jesus goes and, um, and he's standing before Pilate. And one of the most famous passages in the Bible where um, Pilate asks Jesus what is truth. It's in John chapter 18, verse 38. Uh, Jesus is before Pilate, the conversation they're having there. Jesus isn't saying a whole lot. Jesus does respond uh, selectively in saying certain things. And then Pilate, because Jesus mentions truth, and then Pilate asks the pivotal question of all mankind, what is truth? And the thing is, he doesn't even wait for the answer. He turns and walks out. And I, I remember as a high school kid asking my Sunday school teacher, what what is Jesus talking about when he says, and what's the answer to this thing? What is truth? Believe it or not, my Sunday school teacher, when I was in high school, said he went all over the place. I mean, he took me the long way around the barn talking about, you know, Pilate and Jesus and this discourse they had, but he never answered the question. And I was like, well, do you know the answer? And he says, well, I'm not quite sure of the answer. So I said, oh, okay, who should I go to? He says, why don't you go to the pastor? So I went to my pastor. And I asked my pastor, I said, when, when, uh, in John 18, 38, the question is, what is truth? What, what's being discussed here? What, what's the answer to that? My pastor, again, took me on this long journey all over this, this thing and never answered the question. And I was so puzzled. I don't know if somebody's sitting in here, you've often been puzzled by this. And I'll tell you, the, the answer to this, what is truth, will determine how you live the rest of your life. Your entire worldview is based upon your answer to what, what you're going to give us an answer to this question. What is truth? It wasn't until a while later as I was sitting and reading this whole thing again, and I was quite puzzled about this, what is truth, that I realized one day in reading, um, I got to John chapter 17, the chapter before this. Jesus answers the question himself. And I was like, wow. Why did I never see that before? So that's what we're going to look at, because I'm going to take you back here and let you see how Jesus answers the question. See, he's talking to his disciples. It's at the Last Supper. He's praying for his disciples. And in doing so, he answers the question, what is truth? Then just hours later, Pilate asked the same question. The thing is, Jesus has already answered the question. So that's what it is. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, starting at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Wow. Your word is truth. Jesus specifically tells us that the word of God is is truth. And now he tells a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that we are supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. So to worship God correctly, we have to worship God in truth. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, the word of God is needed for us to worship God. Mm -hmm. That's the answer here. Now, if this is... Not quite sure on this or anything. Let's just continue with this. Remember, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. The spirit, as we learned in the last lesson, deals with the heart. Being made right with God, your spiritual condition. Your heart being made right with God. 
That's what he's talking about. Now, um, as to the truth, we need to know how to worship God. We have to know how to worship God. Do we have a worship manual? Yes, we do. It's the Word of God. I mean, this is really simple, really, when you come down to this. It's not that really difficult to understand. Um, he instructs us in this, and like we've already covered, actually I've already stated a couple times in these lessons, that the Word of God is truth. Now, God allows us to know Him in two major ways. This is getting into basic doctrine here, but there's two ways that we can know God. Um, the first one is very simple. It's by natural creation. How do I know about God? How can we learn about God? <laughs> That's one reason I love biology, because nature shouts the existence of God. It really does. You want to understand God? Start studying biology and stuff like that. In the, in the study of living things, you get to really see God in a lot of things. That's one reason I love biology. But Paul talks about this also. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the classic passage in doctrine on this aspect of knowing God through, through the creation, Paul writes this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. What's he shown? Look, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God's creation speaks volumes about him. And like I say, if you take a biology class and you look specifically for evidence of God, you see it all around. It's amazing. You can actually see the master designer's work. You go to an art museum, you can study the brush strokes on the paintings of different painters, and you get to know a little bit about how they'd put things together. Same thing. You can take a, a bacterial cell and examine it. You can look at the reproduction of, of fungies. You see the handiwork of God. You look at the, a leaf and look at the microscopic parts of the leaf, the photosynthetic factory inside there boggles the mind. Or take a look at any living cell and study the metabolic pathways. Whoa! Blows your mind. But it all points to a master designer. Of course, human secularism says, no, that all happened by random chance processes over millions of years. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. I don't buy that. So that's one way you can get to know God. The second way you get to know God, <laughs> it's pretty simple, it comes from the Bible. Yep, the Bible discloses God. Now, we cannot really thoroughly know God. I mean, come on, we're finite beings, we're his created creatures. We're not going to understand God. And people who think they can, <laughs> boy, it just shows how ignorant they are. Uh, but we can know true things about him because the word of God is a testimony all about God. Mm -hmm. But this, you see, requires something. To know about God through his word requires us to diligently and actively seek to know him by studying the Bible. Yeah, studying the Bible. I was talking to a staff member here this past week after the last lesson we had who said, you know, I've never really understood worship. I really, and this is what one person said, I don't really think I've ever worshipped God in my entire life. And another person told me, I don't understand um, why I don't grow spiritually but last week we talked about that maybe the reason we're not growing spiritually is because we're not in the Word of God. And they said they really realize this now. They've started to comprehend that, wow, how can I grow? I mean, how often do we skip a meal physically? 
I mean, we complain bitterly if we don't get lunch, right? We complain bitterly if we don't get a supper. But how many times do we starve ourselves spiritually because we don't go into the Word of God? And as I've said before, I think many people here are literally, in the Christian church, literally starving spiritually. It's sad, but I think it's true. So without our Bibles, we really can't know God very, or I shouldn't say that. We, we can't know God fully. We'll never understand Him fully, but there's so much we can learn if we study the Word of God. And as I said before, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us, and He will teach us. So we must understand that to worship God, we have to do this necessary component of getting into the Word. I mean, Jesus said that. You study uh, to, to worship God, you have to do it in truth. That is the Word of God. That's what Jesus is saying. So it's very simple that we need to do this. Now, acceptable worship will usually include the Word of God. This goes back to biblical times. This is not something new. Matter of fact, I'm going to take you back to 444 B.C. The Bible describes in 444 B.C. in Jerusalem a worship service. Describes it in detail. I love this. This is one of, I've been waiting all, all this summer to throw this one on you because I love this one. What's happened now? I'm going to set the scene for you. What's going on? The Jews have just come back during the reign of the, the Persians now. They've been allowed to go back to uh, Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. This is the time of Nehemiah. And they're going to rebuild the walls, and the temple is slowly getting rebuilt. And there's a lot of things going on. They've just finished the walls, which was a monumental take to do this. I mean, there were the enemies out there constantly threatening to, de to kill and destroy and to come in and wipe all the Jews out for doing this. I mean, they were praying every day. They were really looking for God's protection. And then they get the walls built. And then look what happens. We're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And you're going to see a worship service in the Old Covenant system. This is really cool. So, follow along. All of the people gathered as one man. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Pause here for a second. You notice who's saying to do this? The people. What are they calling for? The book of the law. What's that? The Torah, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They asked for, for Ezra because they're about ready to celebrate. God just did a great thing, so they want to worship God. So the people are initiating it. I love that. They're telling Ezra, bring out the word of God. Okay, continue at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Oh, so all the people are coming out to listen to this. And he read from it. <laughs> you think I go long when I speak? Look what it says. From early morning until midday. That's a long service, eh? If I tried to do that, my tongue would swell and I'd choke and die. <laughs> I mean, that's a long time of preaching. But that's what they're doing. So they're, I mean, it's five books to read there, so that's what they're doing. Um, and it says, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people, for he was above the people. Pause. This means he's on a platform high up. Continuing, and he opened it all, the people, as he opened it, all the people stood. So they all stand up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, 
the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting their hands. Lifting up their hands. Wow, that goes back to ancient times. Isn't that cool? Now look. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord. How? With their faces to the ground. Remember we covered what the word worship means? That is putting your head on the ground. You're kneeling down. You are down on the ground. You know, I, I want to pause here and go off on a rabbit trail for just a moment. Please bear with me. Remember in the book of Philippians, Paul tells us in the last days when we come to the judgment and everybody's there, everybody who's ever lived, do you remember what it says, what Paul says? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Rhetorical question. When you come to that point, I hope that's not the first time you've ever bowed to God. This is what this word is meaning. Remember, to get down. Faces to the ground, verse 7. Also, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the Levites are standing around. Ezra is up here preaching basically quoting the Word of God. What's going on? The Levites, the temple workers, are all standing around, and what are they doing? They're explaining it like small groups. They're going and they're explaining what Ezra is reading. You know what this is, folks? We're supposed to be doing this kind of thing today. But you got to notice that not only is the Word of God being read, it's being explained. What is this? What's talked about here? This is called expository preaching. Yes, expository preaching, which is taking the word of God and having it explained to the people. I'm telling you, this is something that we are missing in a lot of churches today. Christian churches today, we miss this. I strongly believe, I'm going to stand on a soapbox here, literally. If there was one, I would. Um, I strongly believe that expository preaching is very important today. But too often, what do we do? We look for sermons that fit into a little time frame. Oh, he's going five minutes over. How dare he? You know, that preacher's going to go to hell. <laughs> or we go to sermons and we're like, boy, I hope I get some really big emotional charge out of this. Or we go to them and we look for sermons that, boy, that guy's really funny. I like that. Oh, boy, he, he's a good preacher. He can keep me laughing through the whole thing. I love that. Or we go through to sermons where people, the pastor will tell really cool, nice, emotional stories about life and stuff like that. Folks, if that's the kind of church you're going to, if that's the kind of spiritual feeding you're going to, you're really missing something. Because you need to go to a church where you get expository preaching. I so strongly suggest and recommend it to you. It is so, so important. I mean, I could do sermons like that. I could stand up here and give you entertaining stories. I could stand up here and make it all funny and laughter. I could stand up here and really give you some tear-jerking stories that'll just break you down and crush your heart and stuff like this. That's not what this is about. That's not what's going on here. We don't need that. 
Because expository preaching, what happens? You get a better knowledge of God. Why is that important? When you have a better knowledge of God, you can worship. Mm -hmm. Paul talks about the importance of this. The importance of taking the Word of God and applying it to your Christian life. To have it explained so you can understand it and then apply it. That's part of worship. Remember as we said, Romans 12, 1, where you're going to take, Paul says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your act of worship. We need expository preaching to help us get to that stage. But what Paul says, he's writing to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. He's advising Timothy. He says, be a good servant of, of Christ Jesus, being trained, trained in the words of the faith and of what? Of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You see, what Paul's telling us is to study the Word of God. He's telling Timothy to be an expository preacher. Notice that he mentions public reading of Scripture to exhortation to teaching. Because mm -hmm. back then, the Word of God was just as important as it should be today in our worship service. It should still be like that. We need the knowledge of God to help us worship correctly. One of the lessons, I think it was number two, that we went through was how many times we worship God incorrectly. You see this throughout the Bible, many examples of this. We need to worship God correctly, Jesus says. He's telling that to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And how do we get to know that? How do we get to know how to worship God correctly? You've got to get into the Word. That's how you find out. So you have to worship God in spirit and in truth. Do you want to see what Paul recommends for worship time? I love this. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us what a worship service should be like. This is probably what Paul was basically doing when he would do a worship service. So look at this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, there's different components of worship here. Do you know what he says first, though? What's the first thing Paul points out? Does he talk about the music? No. Does he talk about being good friends and, you know, and, and bringing each other? No. The thing is, he says the Word of God. He gets right to the most important thing first. Paul lists first, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. That's the most important aspect. As I told you once before, I was speaking to a youth group up here one time, and as we were standing in this green room back behind the stage, and I was meeting with their <clears throat> quote-unquote worship leader, and he said, yeah, we'll go out, I'm going to lead all the worship and do all this worship and stuff like that, and then Michael, when I get done, you can go out there and do whatever you have to do. And boy, that's not biblically correct. <laughs> but that's what's happened. When Paul is talking about the first thing, the most important thing, it's the word of Christ. That's the most important thing, as he's listing here. 
he lists it first. When he was in Athens, he spoke at Mars Hill. Most people know about this passage. While he was there, that he was walking around in Athens, there's uh, altars and idols to about everything, probably from beetles to doorknobs. They were worshiping everything. And they had one altar that was to the unknown God that they were worshiping also. They were worshiping God in ignorance, is what Paul said. And as we see, that is unacceptable. We'll take a look at it. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Paul starts off, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. There, he's stroking them. For as I pass along and observe the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He didn't praise them for worshiping God. You notice this? He's chiding them for worshiping in ignorance. Folks, we must not worship God in ignorance. Lesson number two. We must not worship God in ignorance. And that's what the people were doing. We must worship God, how? In spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus himself says. So the word of God is instrumental in worship. Now, how do I prepare myself for worship? Okay? Someone asked me that question, so I had to put this in here somewhere, and I wanted to stick it in before I left, so I'm right down here at the end now. But I thought this is so important, because a lot of times I don't think we properly worship because we're not prepared and going to worship God on a Sunday morning or walking in the woods or sitting on a kayak out in a lake or wherever you go to worship God, maybe it's in your closet at home, wherever you go, there is a preparation that we need to do. So I think there's part of the problem of why we go to church sometimes and we just don't get much out of it is because we're not prepared. And we often lose this image that when we go to worship, we're coming into the presence of the holy God and you're going to walk in the presence of the Holy God. You better be prepared for that. Forgive us, God, for when we, the times we just come walking in here thinking, well, I've been pretty good this week or something. Let's talk about this. I mean, I, really, it's too often. I think we all, and I've been guilty of this too, walking into a church totally unprepared for worshiping God. And then when the service is over, we walk out of the church or we walk out of the woods or we come back to the shore and we're like, boy, why didn't I get much out of this today? Oh, it must have been the sermon. It must have been too long. Or it must have been the song service. They didn't sing the right song. I remember thinking those things. And that's not right. I'd come into the service. I've come into the time where I was going to worship God, and I was not prepared. So how do I get prepared? Well, it's often because we carelessly come so unprepared that we get taken back and we walk out feeling empty. And I know you've all felt that. It happens. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, talks about this a little bit. He gets into this, and he makes a very serious and very good point about this thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, look what the writer of Hebrews says about worship. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, 
Oh, that's actually in the Bible? We're supposed to meet together? Yeah. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, as we look at this passage, did you notice that the issue is not how well prepared the preacher was? Mm-mm. That's not, if you're thinking your problem with your sermon is, wow, that preacher just wasn't really that good today. That's not the problem of your worship. Or if you're thinking, boy, the choir just didn't sing a really good song, or the choir was a little bit off, or the, uh, the praise team up here, you know, they made a couple of goofs and stuff like that. Oh, they just couldn't get into it, ruined my worship. You're not prepared. Or, oh, I didn't like the song selections we did. Maybe that's what's going on and everything like that. You're not prepared. Mm-mm. That's not the issue. That is not the issue. The issue is how well prepared are you to come before the Almighty, the Holy God, and actually worship Him? I think we take this way too lightly in the Christian church today. Now, in this passage, we're actually told a number of things from this passage in Hebrew. First, it says that we're supposed to come when we get prepared to worship. That means on a Sunday morning, if you're getting to go someplace to worship, or like I say, wherever you go, whenever you worship, first, you come to God with a true heart. That's the first thing this writer of Hebrews writes. Are you sincere in your commitment to God? Number one, that's actually going back into the lesson last week. Second, we are to come in faith. Faith in what? The new covenant with God through Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through me. So in the covenant that Jesus set up. Third, we must come clean. You're coming into the presence of holy God. Though you may be saved, yes, you still get dirty, as we've talked about before in previous lesson, from all of the sinful nature around us and stuff, and living in this sinful environment, we get tempted and we make mistakes and we fall into sin. So before worshiping God, you need to, all, all of us, myself included, we need to do a self-check and see if there's some hidden sin blocking our way to come into the presence of the Holy God. I mean, really, how many times do you do that when you get ready to go to church on a Sunday? How many times when you get ready to go out and spend some time worshiping? Or maybe you're coming here on Thursday night, or if you're coming into this building on a Sunday, or any morning, as we have the gathering place and the speakers and we spend time in praise, how many times do we actually do this? Do we sit down and actually seek our own heart? Is there something wrong in my life and my relationship with God that can block the path? If so, boy, you better deal with it. Or you're coming in unprepared. You deal with it before you come to worship. Don't deal with thinking, well, I'll confess and everything. Maybe we'll have the Lord's table and I'll get the chance to do it. No, 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 no. Come and do it before. Prepare before you come. Fourth, we need to be washed with pure water, the writer says. That means what he's talking about is salvation. And as we've already covered, to worship God correctly, you have to be saved. You have to be born from above, or as some people call it, born again. That is a must. There is no other way around it, because the only way we can come to God is through Jesus Christ, through His blood. We have to be covered with that. That was a lesson we covered too. And the word for washing here is the Greek word luo, which means a total covering, a total washing. This is salvation. That's what we're talking about. You have to be covered. You have to be cleansed. The only way to come before God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can acceptably worship God. 
Maybe, maybe we should remember this phrase. We do not have any right to come before our holy God. I mean, if you really think about it, this is true. We have no right to come into the presence of holy God. The only way we can do it is through his grace. It is only by his grace that we can come into his presence. God forgive us for how many times we just blatantly walk in with all the crud all over us. Don't forget that. What's the results of worship? Well, I've already pointed out to you, the results of worship in life is to glorify God. That's why we were created, to worship God. And one of the lessons I told you, Christians could be just as well called true worshipers of God because that's what we are. That's what's supposed to happen. Now, three things are quite apparent in Scripture as I was researching this as a result of our worshiping God correctly. Three things will happen. First of all, God is glorified. There's no question about that. That's the purpose of this whole thing. Our purpose is to glorify Him. God is glorified. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 10. Remember, the book of Leviticus is where God is telling us how to worship. He's setting up the tabernacle, and He's telling us, this is how you worship. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, He says, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. There you go. A result of worship, God gets glorified. And as I've told you before in previous lessons, worship is not something of us getting, it's something of us giving. Too often we come in thinking we're going to walk out with our pockets filled or something or getting some type of blessing and stuff. That's not true worship. You're coming to worship, you're giving God something. You're giving God glory. Uh, the writer of Psalms, David, said the same thing in Psalm 50, 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me, to the one of his, uh, of his way, rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The thanksgiving of his sacrifice, that's a way of worship, remember. What happens? He gets glorified. Second, we come into the presence of God, one of the results is going to be this. We're going to get purified. When we come correctly, we come prepared, we get purified. As we learn to worship God correctly, you have to come into his presence with a clean heart has to do this. If there's some unconfessed sin in your life, we must ask God to forgive us of that sin. You have to be prepared. And I really think one of the most damaging problems we have with worship is that we think that we can go to a Sunday morning, exit the church or whatever, or our time of worshiping God, wherever we are, in the lake, in the woods, in the bedroom, wherever, and then we can live our life however we choose, doing whatever we want, and just dirty up our lives and everything, and it really doesn't matter too much because God's forgiven me, I'm a Christian and everything, you know, and all that. And we get to do whatever we want. And then, oh, well, it's Sunday time. I'll come to church now, and I'll go in there, and I'm going to sing some songs. So I sing some songs. Oh, I'll put some money in the offering. Um, I'll try not to fall asleep during the sermon. Um, and I'll, 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 I exit all this after singing all this stuff and everything, and then we think that we walk out of the church, wow, I did my job, my justice is done, I really worship God. No, you haven't. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That is so wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. As I said before, lesson last week, Worship is something you do all the time in everything that you do. Worship is how you live your life. The way you handle your money, the way you do your job, how long, how short are your breaks. 
To worship God, we should not be taking long breaks. We don't come into work late. Coming into work late dishonors God. Taking a long break at work more than you're supposed to dishonors God. That does not fit with Romans 12.1. We should be living as holy as we possibly can because that's what God tells us to do in Peter. Be holy because I am holy. It's a 24-7 job, folks. Worship is. It's just not something, as we've covered before, it's just not something that takes place on a Sunday morning. Yet it amazes me. that Many Christians, the only time we ever really deal with the contamination in our lives caused by sin is maybe on a Sunday when we sit down and we participate in the Lord's Supper. You know how those things go? You have that time where just before they pass out the elements, they read from uh, 1 Corinthians, and it says, you know, Paul is saying to examine ourselves before we partake so that we're not guilty of the body of the blood of Christ. Examine ourselves, see if there's some type of sin. Don't you often find that, uh, really, don't you find that be one of the most awesome times in a church service when you can actually sit there and examine your life Why do we only do it during the Lord's table? And what's even worse, why do we only do that once a month on the first Sunday? You know, there's no place in the Bible says to do it that way. Do you know that the early church, if you go back and look at the historians from the first century, second century, even the third century, do you know that they did this every Sunday? Every time they met together? In some cases, every single time they got together, not just on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, any time they would get together, they would do the Lord's Supper with that type of examination. I did attend a church years ago that was something that was done every single church service. And when I would talk to my friends about it, and they say, oh boy, you probably lose respect of the Lord's table that way. Au contraire. It was one of the coolest things because it made us every single week in that church service to sit and examine our lives and our relationship with God. In other words, it brought us to a point of being prepared to worship, where otherwise many of us didn't. Hmm. Maybe we should do that more often. Third, what happens? The church is edified. Edification. Ooh, what's that? I'm going to go back to Webster's 1828 dictionary because it's not politically correct. It just states it the way it is. And I love his dictionary. I looked up um, edification. It says, and this is what he recorded, Daniel Webster said this, um, a building up in a moral and religious sense, instruction, improvement and progress of the mind in knowledge and morals and in faith and holiness. That's edification. And that's a good thing. I like how the Amplified Bible puts it. I'm going to read this in two different ways. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, I'm going to read just as the verse goes. Therefore, encourage one another and edify one another just as you are. Now, the beautiful thing about the Amplified Bible, if you've never seen this Bible, um, it's a really interesting study tool Bible to read on the side because the, um, the Bible has these parentheses and brackets that help define what the words are to get you a mindset of what's going on. So it's sort of a cool Bible in a way. That's what the Amplified Bible is. Now listen to the verse. Therefore, encourage, admonish, exhort one another and edify strengthen and build up one another just as you are doing. That's edification, folks. There's the whole doctrine of edification, so cool, put to us right there. You see, the whole church benefits when we worship. Why does the church benefit? Because we change. 
And remember, as we've said, we're the temple of God. We need God to have all of its parts together. That's why it's so important for us to meet together. You think, well, I can just worship God by myself out on the lake. I don't have to go to a church. Well, yeah, that's true. You can, but boy, you're missing a whole lot because when the whole church is together, all the different parts come together at the temple, and boy, that is so necessary. Mm-hmm. Really is. And you know what happens when you come into the presence of God? You're changed. We don't have time to go through all the passages in the Bible because I'm about out of time now. But look through. When people come in contact with holy God, examine this. Do a Bible study on this. This is so cool. Whenever somebody comes in the presence of God, guess what? They're changed. Moses, <laughs> remember what happened in Moses in Exodus chapter 34? When he came in the presence of God, he glowed. Literally. It was like God breaking a chem light stick, you know, and Moses was a chem light stick. He glowed for a while. Whoa! You come into the presence of God, you're going to change. You come into what is the absolute ultimatum and standard of what is holy, you're going to change. You will. Fourth, the unsaved are evangelized. When the lost person sees true worship, not this fake stuff, sees true worship, he can be convicted of his sin and realize that he needs Jesus to save him. Because remember, to worship God correctly, we have to all be saved. And that is the purpose of salvation, is to make worshipers of God. So this is what is so important, and that's why it's like this. Paul, I'm going to touch on a really interesting one here. Paul chided the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians because that church was one. It was a screwed up church, really messed up. And in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul sort of lets loose both barrels at these Christians because they were so wrapped up in speaking in tongues. And he really nails them. Watch this. What's he doing? He's, they're so wrapped up in speaking in tongues, they're not prophesying. And I'll explain that in a second, but let's look at the passage. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for the unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for the unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and, and all speak in tongues, the outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? I love that. Paul's so cool with this. But if all prophesy, and I'm not talking about the future, what that's talking about is preaching and explaining Scripture and stuff. That's what this is talking about. But if all prophesies, and an unbeliever or outside, outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on, get this, falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Oh, isn't that cool? What is prophesying? In the New Covenant, this gift means to preach or to instruct in religious doctrines, to interpret, to explain Scripture, expository preaching. Here, we're back to that again. Paul tells us also that prophesying is more important than speaking in tongues because the saved will be able to understand what their spiritual condition is. If everybody's speaking in tongues, what are they going to think? This isn't giving me anything. I just think you guys are all nuts. 
How's he going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? How's he going to be convicted of his sin? Unless somebody does expository preaching to explain his, his condition before a holy God. But I love that. Paul says at the end, he falls on his face and he worships God. The actual term for worship. How cool is that? Mm. Worship can result in great things. And I'm out of time. I've gone long here, but I tell you, this is so important. There's so many more things I wish I could tell you, but we just don't have time. We've looked at the different aspects of life, and I just want to leave you with this thing I said earlier. When the time comes and we have to stand before Jesus Christ, and the verse comes true that says, every knee shall bow, I do hope and pray, folks, that's not going to be the first time you ever bow before God. To stand there with all of the unbelievers when they bow for the first time, and you being a Christian, a follower of God, that that, you just see, standing there, this guy who's not saved, he's about to be condemned. Um, so how many times have you bowed? Um, I've actually never bowed before. And you're a worshiper of God? You've never bowed? No, this will be my first time too. You see how embarrassing that would be? Take some time out and really worship God. True worship results in great things. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. It is the standard. The way that we view your word determines every single thing, every single aspect of our life. And your word is truth. Lord, we've taken some time here in these last weeks of the summer exploring what worship is and know we've I feel like I've done such a poor job in many ways. There's so many aspects I never even got into. But Lord, I hope that we've got enough here to at least stimulate the minds that your spirit can teach them and show them what real worship is and help us to change. Lord, forgive us of the times we so many times we come into your presence thinking we're going to worship and we're not prepared. Help us to be prepared. Help us to search for explanations, for expository preaching and understanding of your word so that we get to know you better. And by getting to know you better, Lord, we can worship you all the more. I pray that those who are listening on the internet, those in this room, Lord, we will never be the same or look at worship the same way because we've examined what your word says and your word is truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.